The Word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the Word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our Saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's Word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to bromleytownchurch.com. with the knowledge of your presence. The Lord, that we can gaze upon you, as it were, in our minds to see you, to understand you, and to know that you are good and that you love us. Thank you for the blessings that you so richly give to each one of us. We pray this morning, Lord, that we may understand this even better, Lord, and that these blessings may flow into us, but not just remain in us, that they may flow out of us and bless others too. So, Father, please minister your glory and your goodness to each one of us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're looking at the blessing of salvation this week. The blessing of salvation. We're going to be concentrating mainly from the second chapter of Ephesians, which I'm going to read to you in one second. I just want to emphasize again, though, for those of you... Last week I talked about Acts chapter 19, so here we are talking about Ephesians, and now suddenly we're talking about Acts chapter 19. The reason I'm talking about Acts chapter 19 is that is the establishment of the church in Ephesus. And if you go there and read in Acts, you read of the story of how Paul came to Ephesus and how he established the church. And what we see is it's a spiritual encounter. There's a lot of spiritual activity that happens. Last week we were looking at this phrase in the heavenly realms and I was talking about the fact that that's the place where the spiritual things are happening. It's the spirit realm, if you like. And Paul talks about a lot of that in this letter. Paul came to Ephesus and he met some Christians and he baptized them in the Holy Spirit. Only a small group of believers. But then he went on to preach and to teach in one of the synagogues for three months. And you can imagine, as he's teaching and preaching the Jewish believers, he's beginning to gain some momentum. But as he's gaining momentum, as in some are enjoying his preaching, so you also gain momentum of the opposite. That some are standing up, hey, we don't like this. Why don't you be silent? And this is rising up. So Paul removes himself from the synagogue but instead hires a hall in the centre of town and starts going and preaching to everybody, to Jews and to Gentiles, to everyone. And he says he does this for the next two years. That's a long while. You know, we have concerts that come in London on the O2 and things like that. Somebody does what, one night, two nights? You know, if they're really, really big, they might do three nights, and that's it. Paul was there two years And it says that his preaching and his teaching started to affect the whole area. Had a massive impact. Stirs people up. And it says this, that God gave him the power to do extraordinary miracles. It wasn't of Paul. Paul was just the guy who was doing the work of God. But it says that God gave him. I want to underline this fact. This God that we are serving is alive and he's able to help us. We need to get hold of this. He is alive today, and he is able to help us. In the midst of Paul's preaching, God gave him the ability. 
It wasn't Paul's ability, but he received from God the power to do extraordinary miracles. And we can go into this, but he was praying for people to be healed. But people were coming to him and they were laying handkerchiefs of pieces of cloth. If they touched his skin, they would take these handkerchiefs and cloths back to their own people that they knew were sick. They were laying them on the sick people and they were being healed. Now just imagine that today, if every one of us was to take a handkerchief or a piece of cloth or a tissue and just come, as it were, raise it before God and go and lay it on those who we know who are sick, you can imagine a great stirring that's going on. Because all of us know somebody who's sick. It affects all of us. So extraordinary miracles were going on. And it even says that some people, when these handkerchiefs were laid on them, they were being delivered of demonic oppression. Now that's powerful. We see Jesus encountering a man and he's actually casting out the demons by a word. Come out in the name of Jesus. Well, he doesn't say in the name of Jesus. He just says come out because he was Jesus. But here, handkerchiefs are just being laid on people and people are being delivered. Extraordinary miracles were being done because of the power of God that was on Paul. Now, what happens in these circumstances is that people get hold of, oh, I'd like to do that. I'd like to do that. That's amazing. And so what we're seeing is that there are some people who rose up and said, I want to do the same thing. Seven sons of Sceva, one of the priests, they wanted to do this. And they went out. But you see, the thing is, when you don't have the same connection, when you don't carry the same authority, problems happen. And so they were coming out and saying, because they want to bless people, they wanted to bless these characters, they, they, they went up to people and they said, come out, in the name of Paul, in the name of Jesus. And one day this demon says, look, Paul I know, Jesus I know, who are you? And they get beaten up, they get stripped, and they run out of the building naked, seven men. Seven against one, you can see that, hang on, this demonic power is powerful. Now this had a great stirring, and that stirring, when people in the church, when believers started to hear about this, so this is like us this morning, and suddenly we find one of our number, this has happened to them, and everybody in church is like, wow. And it says this, it says, many of those who believed, so as they hear this news, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Many of those who believed. So it's just like in church, and we're saying, oh, we're believers, we're having, we're singing, we're worshipping. But you see, when things go to a different spiritual level, other things start to break. And we need to understand this, that there are levels in the spirit realm. There's levels of us operating with God. We can go deeper into the things of God. And as we go deeper into the things of God, he starts taking off veils and things you didn't see before. See, before all of this happened, those people were in church and those sins were being secret. They were being hidden. Oh, I, I do that during the week, but no, no, you know, I'm getting on. I, I come amongst the fellowship. I'm enjoying the fellowship of the believers. That's all right. I'm enjoying that. But suddenly the spiritual temperature changes. It's like, whoa, I can't cope with this anymore. Lord, I have sinned. I have done this. I've been cheating at my work. It all comes out into the open. You know, there's nothing secret before God. All those things that we try to hold off, those things that we try to tuck away, 
Those things that are done on a Friday, that obviously they stay on a Friday because now it's Sunday and we're in church. Those things that happen in the office, those attitudes, those thoughts, we think they're all secret. We think they're hidden. We don't speak of them to anybody else. Maybe not even members of our family. Maybe not even our husband or wife. They're known to God and at any moment, he can bring it out. He is an awesome God. And this awesomeness is the background to this church. So I'm putting that in perspective because we want to see what, how were these people feeling? How were these people been affected? They've been affected by the power of God. They've been affected by signs, wonders and miracles. They've been affected by the fact that people were repenting. It wasn't just great miraculous signs. It was the fact that somebody who's sitting next to you is suddenly saying, listen, this is the secrets of my life, but I can't hold on to them anymore because I want to be clean before God. I tell you what, sometimes that has greater power than just somebody being healed. Because wow, this is the background of this church. And today we're going to look at this, the blessing of salvation which they have walked into and which Paul was proclaiming to them. We're going to look quickly. Let me read the, let me read the chapter and you can read it with me. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, we're going to come up with, it's going to come up on the screen. Hallelujah. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm reading uh, from verse 1 through to verse 10. And you can follow it in the Bible or on the screen. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in, our trans in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're going to look at three quick headings. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Three quick headings, first of all, of what we were. Firstly, as it says in Ephesians 1, verse 1, we were dead. We were dead, it says, because of our transgressions and sins. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were dead. Transgressions and sins. They're both talking about sin, but there's two different words there, really just to give us an understanding of some of the things or some of the ways that we've gone wrong. And this isn't announcing, well, have you told a lie? It's telling us the, the, the root of what sin is. A transgression is when you walk over a boundary, you cross over a line. And a sin, or the word used for sin here, is when you have missed the mark or when you have fallen short of the right standard. So it's like when God says, this is the way I want you to walk, it's like there's a pathway there, and down the end, either side of the path is marked a white line. And in effect, he's saying, like, guys, keep within the line. 
And you know there's, there's games and things where the idea of the game is you've got to keep within the line. You're supposed to colour. When you give kids colouring books, colouring by numbers, they're supposed to colour within the line. And you know that when they're young, they don't really do that. And you go, oh, that's lovely. Whether you're thinking like, it's a mess because you haven't kept within the line. God wants us to keep within his lines. And when we don't, what we do is we transgress. We go over the mark. We go over the line. Have you transgressed? Do you know within yourself, you know you've walked over the line that God has established in your life? Yeah, we do. That's sin. And sin is not coming up to the right standard. Sin is missing the mark that God has set. That God has set. That is what sin is. And because we have fallen into these ways, God says this, you become dead. You die spiritually. There's this big thing, well, we're alive today. I'm fine. Yeah, but you may be alive on the outside. The physical man may still be living, but the spirit man inside you can be disconnected from God. You can feel like he is miles away. I cannot reach to him. I cannot connect to him because my spirit is dead. And we were dead in our transgression and sins. What Paul is covering there, all sin. And it's the sins of omission and the sins of commission. The things that we have done that we ought not to have done and the things that we should have done that we did not do. It's both of those things. Because it's not just like, oh, I've done this and that's wrong. You could also say, yeah, but you didn't do what was right. You didn't seek God. You didn't love God with all of your heart. You didn't do those things. And because you didn't do them, that also is a sin. The sins of omission and the sins of commission. And Paul is covering all of them. And what he is saying, before God, you were rebels. You were failures in terms of following what God wanted you to follow. You were alienated from the life of God. And if you think that, Paul, uh, that John says that this is life, this is eternal life, that you might know him, you might know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, that is eternal life. And so if we've been estranged from knowing God, you can see we don't have life, we have the opposite of life, we have death. And we have been found that we are in death. We are distanced, we are disconnected, we are alienated from God. Isaiah 59 talks of it like this. It says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. That's what's happened. That's what happens when we sin. There is a separation. You go to the beginning of the Bible, into Genesis, and you read about the very first separation. For myself, if somebody was to say to me, what do you think is the most sad situation in the whole of the Bible? Because some people would say, well, maybe it's the death of Jesus. And we've been celebrating that. It seems funny. We celebrate the death. But you see, there's victory in his death. For me, the saddest day is when Adam and Eve took that and ate that fruit. Because at that point of eating that fruit, separation from God came separation. Until that point, there had been perfect communion. There had been free, easy access to all of God's presence all of the time. But now they ate of that fruit and separation from God came. They had to get out of the garden so that they could, so they wouldn't eat the fruit of the tree of life. I hate separation. I hate the thought of that separation from God. 
but it says we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were separated from the things of God. Not only were we dead, it talks about the fact that we were enslaved. I'm going to read from the King James Version because it just un- underlines this more clearly. So the, the language is a little bit uh, more difficult to understand, but you'll hear what I say. Uh, verse 2 and 3. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. We were walking in a way. Now for the Hebrews, for the Jews, this phrase, the way, and you know last week I mentioned that Christians were known as people of the way. The phrase, the way, really it meant for a Jew, it's talking about the way you're living, your life, your lifestyle, if you like. So we, we can understand that it's a way that you walk in is a way of life that you're, you're carrying on with. And what we see here is that you walked, Paul was saying you walked according to the course of this world. Not according to the kingdom of God, but according to the ways of this world. That's the way that your life was going. That's the way you did life. And it's not that we stop and think and make every reference. Am I doing this according to the ways of the world or the ways of God? It's just become so natural to us. It's just how we live. We don't give it a second thought. It's what's going on. That's the way that we're walking in. And there is a sense in which when you are walking in a way, you walked according to the course of this world. There is a sense that we could feel that according to that way. There's a sense in which we've been entrapped in that way. We've been enslaved in that way. We'd love to get out. We'd love to go a different route, but we find this route almost so comfortable. You know what it's like when a car goes down a a field and uh, and then another car and then another car and then another car and they start sinking in? You get that groove where the cars have been. Then when another car comes along behind, it's not like they, they don't go out anywhere. They just fit into the groove and go along the groove, just like a railway line. You're on the track, you don't want a train to come off the track, you want it to stay on the track. And there's a sense in which we get locked into a way of life and it just seems to be the right way. What reinforces it as being the right way? Well, most everybody else is walking that way. It seems to be the way that we go. But you see, we become enslaved. We become entrapped to that way, not only according to the way of this world, but it says according to the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air is another name given to Satan. He is the one who is operating in that heavenly realm, in that spiritual realm. He's not the highest authority as we looked at last week, but he's operating in that realm and therefore operating in that realm affecting our spiritual, our spiritual life, affecting us. So he's having an effect upon us. We were enslaved. We were dead. We were enslaved. In fact, not only according to the ways of the world and according to the prince of the power of the air, but it's also we were gratifying our flesh. It says in verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh or our sinful nature. Oh, you know what I could do? I could do with a drink right now. Now, obviously not right now. I'm just saying it as though you'd... You know how you think, those things? oh, right now I could do with this. Or right now I'd like to have that. Or right now I'd like to have this. These are thoughts that come into your mind. Not necessarily right here, 
Right here, you'll be thinking, I want to be close to Jesus. But you see, you don't always live here. You go away from here, and there are things that happen during the week that come into your mind, that come into your heart, and suddenly you're thinking, like, oh, I'd like to do this. That are not driven from God, they're driven out of the cravings of our sinful nature. And those things can lock us into patterns of sin. We were dead, we were enslaved. And thirdly, we were condemned. It says in verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Objects, that is, of God's wrath. Or putting it more clearly, we were the ones upon whom God's wrath was focused. You know, we were talking about transgressing the line as being sin. I think it's in, uh, when they're cycling around uh, a velodrome, they're allowed to cycle around, but there's a line right in the middle, not in the middle, right near the edge, on the flat part, not on the banked up part, and the bike are not allowed to go over that. John, am I right in saying that? I'm right. Thank you, John, for that. You're not allowed to go over that. Now, if they did, and in the Olympics or something like that, or the World Cycling Championships, if one of the bike's tyres went over that line, they'd say, no, sorry, you're out. It's similar with, with a, just in football, with a goal. It's not a goal unless the ball has transgressed the line, has gone over the line. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? In those sports, we all think like, hey, he went over the line, that's wrong, stop! He must be disqualified. Or that ball didn't go over the line. It's not a goal. And everybody gets uptight and they're shouting and screaming about it. And yet when we talk about the wrath of God, we think like, why should God be so angry? And yet the principle is the same. He's saying, you've gone over my line. You don't understand. It's not the way this is played. You've transgressed the line. And therefore we say, oh, okay. So God actually does have the right to be angry. And don't forget, God's anger is not just flying off the handle. Why have you done that? Shouting and screaming. It's not like that. God's anger is his righteous judgment against everything that is wrong. It's that part of him that says, look, no, you're not going to get away with what is wrong because I'm against myself if that happens. No. And just as we can understand in sport when people need to be disqualified because they haven't played by the rules, so in life, God is basically saying, listen, if you're not going to play by my rules, then my wrath is against you. My wrath is against you. We don't like to talk about the wrath of God because it's, it's uncomfortable. But you see, we were objects of his wrath. We were in a position where the wrath of God was against us. And Paul talks about this further in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, it says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then further on in Romans 1, it says this, although they knew, talking about people, although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. It's the same thing. It's like our cyclist has gone over his line, and now suddenly we're saying, like, oh, that's okay, it doesn't matter. Suddenly the whole sport and fairness and everything about what is true, how do you measure anything as right or wrong if people just don't care anymore? 
There's, there's no sport left. It's not, any, it's not equal. It's not fair anymore. And the same thing is true in life before God. God wants us to live according to his rules. And when we don't, his wrath is against us. In John 3, 16, it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. This is the picture that we have of our world. Now, to be honest with you, when we're reading these first few verses of Ephesians, it doesn't exactly lift you up. In fact, actually, you start to realize, we're in a bit of a hole here. But that actually is an understatement. We're not just in a bit of a hole. We are completely lost. We're completely distanced from God. We're separated from the life of God. We are in a desperate mess. And that's the position of what mankind is in without God. But fortunately here, in verse 4, it says, but because of his great love for us. And there is a sense in which we're talking about, but God. And God has acted to help us. And fortunately, we can look at three things that he has done to help us. Firstly, he's helped us because of his great love. Let me just read the scripture again. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Even when you were dead. So just all that darkness, that blackness, that utter despondency that we've just been looking at, that position, that's where we were. And in that place, when we had no way of escape, when we could do nothing of ourselves, in that black hole, God acted. When we were in that position, God acted. And he acted because of his love. Love often causes extravagant behavior. That sort of phrase, I don't care how much it costs, that's fine. Utter extravagance. Helen experiences this on her birthday. Sort of. Perhaps we won't go there. That sense in which when you love somebody, there is something within you when you say, actually, I don't care about the cost because I love you so much, I want to express it. Now, usually they don't, well, actually, hang on. You know, how much is my credit limit? You know, they're, they're, those sort of things do come in there somewhere, regretfully. But you know what I mean? There is an extravagance about love. And we understand an extravagance about love because of the people that we love and the people in our families that we love around us. And it causes that certain extravagance in us. We understand that. Now, you need to understand there is an extravagance in heaven towards us. There is an absolute extravagance in God. I don't care what the cost is. I'm going after them. And that cost was his own son. 
But you see, his love demanded that he acted with such extravagance. Oh, if only we could understand and comprehend the extravagance of the love that God has for every one of us. Last week we were talking about the fact before even the world was created, he's chosen us. And that word of choice is just giving us some understanding that he has a focus upon our our lives, that he cares about us. In heaven, he is extravagant because he loves you. He loves you. See how our hearts say, oh yeah, but. See how our souls don't want to get too excited. See how we haven't quite grasped. I, I, I better not quite trust that because I'm not quite certain whether he's going to deliver. That is the spirit that affects us. Is lies and deceit. Because when you see in heaven the love that heaven has for the people on the earth, the passion that God has, it's because of his love that he motivated. That was the motivation, the extravagance that caused God to send his son. That's, why, that's because of that that he wanted to get us out of the mess that we were in. And we as people here on earth, I talk about our extravagance in terms of giving gifts, but there's a truth in that. And the Bible itself even reflects on that truth. You, though you are evil, it says, you know how to give good gifts to your children, which we do, even when they're naughty, even when they say things like, oh, mum, I'd love that for Christmas, and you think there's no way, I don't even like that toy, I haven't even got the money for it, inside something says, I'd love to be able to give that to you. So if that's us, if we can reflect on that, if we can understand in a part that that's going on inside of us towards those around us, how much more is what it says. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Or in another version, another gospel it says, will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him. How much more? We need to reflect. You don't understand the love of God? Think about the love that you have for your children or your wife or your husband or your mum or your dad. Think about that. See what it's like. Look into your soul and see a reflection of something and then understand the love of God is far greater than that and it's aimed at you. He's passionate for you. We have to address ourselves with this issue because there's something within us that wants to push it away, that doesn't want to believe it. Why? Because the more we believe it, the more it affects our lives. I cannot stay the same. If he loves me that much, I must surrender my whole life to him. Actually, it's more than that. You know what? It's that I don't mind surrendering my life to him because he is good. The reason I don't want to surrender is because, oh, hang on a second. I'm not quite sure. Is it true? Can you really take care of me? What if you let me down? What if you don't come through at the right time? What if this happens? What if that happens? But every time we go back to Scripture and we look at what God's like, he never fails. He never lets us down. He said, lo, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. His promise never to leave us, never to forsake us. Boy, oh boy, this sounds like a good friend to me. 
This sounds like somebody that we need to get to know because of his love. Oh, that God would help us to understand his love more and more. Because of his love, he sent his one and only son. Because of his love, point one, but secondly, God who is rich in mercy. Mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is an act of kindness, compassion or favour towards an offender. Mercy has the power to pardon somebody. So it's when somebody doesn't deserve something, but God is giving it to them. It's a prisoner who is in prison, and somebody is saying like, out you go. Go and live your life, be free. He's being shown mercy. Mercy is overlooking, or it's, it's looking beyond all the crime that has been committed and is acting out of a heart of compassion and love towards somebody. It says that God is rich in mercy. Now when we hear that phrase rich, we think of money, don't we? Money. Money. Money, no, I won't sing that song. You've seen the new five pound note, I'm not gonna get anything bigger. You've seen the new five pound note, plastic. Really, when you think about it, this is worth nothing. But you see, money is a store of value and a unit of exchange. That's what we've all come to know. So what we believe, we see that five pounds, that's got five pounds of spending worth, that has. What else have we got in here? Not a lot, but we've got some. We've got one of these, 20 pounds. That would buy more than that because it's got bigger power. Look, in truth, it's paper. We're stupid, aren't we? That's just paper and a bit of plastic. And you know what? Rich people, they've got loads of paper and plastic. Do you know what? My God is rich in mercy. It's a tangible asset that can affect my life. Actually, beyond that, the whole of the universe belongs to him. The whole of the universe belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it is what the psalmist says. He is rich. We think about rich. I want to be rich. I want to be because I want to possess things. Things that you can't take with you when you die. But we're pursuing them. We're pursuing them because we're hoping that they are going to give us happiness and joy and fulfillment when there is fulfillment to be found only in one place. And we need to go to him who is rich in mercy. Because mercy we find forgiveness. Mercy we find redemption. Mercy we are brought back from the brink. We have a God who is rich in mercy. He has an ability to act with incredible kindness and compassion when we don't deserve it. He is rich in mercy. And then, of course, it goes on to talk about the fact that he is full of grace. Grace is slightly different from mercy. Grace is unmerited favor. It's slightly different, and yet it's almost the same. It's being granted favor when we really do not deserve it. And our God is abundant in these things. We were dead, but now God is making us alive. Because of his love, because of the richness of his mercy, thirdly, he makes us alive with Christ. Now don't forget, 
we were dead. That's where we were. But now we're being made alive. We were dead. We were hopeless. But now we're being given life. We were in the black hole, but now we're being lifted up. We were bound, but now we're being released. This is the God who is helping us. This is the blessing that we have received. He says, we have been made alive with Christ. Made alive with Christ. When was Jesus made alive? Some of you thought, well, when was that? Lo, in the grave he lay, Jesus my Saviour. There he was locked in that cold tomb. They put him in the tomb. He was dressed in those clothes. And they put him in the tomb. It was cold. It was damp. And the stone was rolled because he was dead and he was left there. And the stone was rolled in place and it was sealed up and that's where he was. He was dead in the tomb. But you see, in heaven, God his Father was acting and he acted in power. And there came a moment on the third day when the incredible power of God came upon that tomb and Jesus was brought back to physical life again. When we were singing those songs earlier, there's that, there was a line in there talking about heaven. And you can just imagine, you know, when that stone was rolled away and Jesus came out, in heaven the angels were just cheering and cheering because of the glory of what had happened. Because the angels are above the demons and they can see the effect that the demonic realm is having on the earth. They can see the effect that sin is having on the earth. It says all of creation is in bondage, is groaning, awaiting for that day. So when they see the sign of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, arising from the tomb, he is alive. All of heaven is shouting praise. All of heaven is reverberating because he who was made dead and Satan thought he'd killed him off, he has come back to life and he has now conquered sin and death and it is through Jesus Christ that we have the power to live life again. This happened when he was made alive. He's raised him from the dead. I've got loads of scriptures. I've just seen the time. A little bit of problem here. Um, third point. Go straight to the third point. We've missed a few things out, but don't worry. Let's go straight to verse 10, because we were saved for a purpose. All of this reason, the way that God saw that we were dead, the way that he has come to act on our behalf to rescue us and to lift us up, it was all for a purpose. And that purpose is found significantly in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In Uh, In the NIV, it says something slightly different. It says, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. We are God's workmanship. He created us in the first place. We fell into sin. We've become corrupted. And now we have been recreated in Christ Jesus. We were dead, but now in Christ we have been made alive. There is resurrection for us in Christ. We were enslaved, but now in Christ we have been redeemed. There is liberation for us in Christ. 
We were condemned. We were under God's wrath. But now in Christ, we have become the righteousness of God and we have the right to be called the sons and daughters of the Most High God. He has brought us out of all that negative place and he has now brought us into a new place where we now can do the good things that God has called for us to do. So we can do. So we can do. Oh no, I don't know whether I can share my faith. I don't know whether I can live for Jesus. So that we can do. We just have to be connected with him. Folks, the key to all of this is will you just look to Jesus and will you start trusting in him that he can take care of you? That's the key to it all. It's not just saying, oh, I believe. It's not just saying, Lola, you know, I'm a Christian. It's, it's, it's bigger than that. It's looking to Jesus and actually having the courage to believe that what he says is true. And when I say having the courage, you see, so often we think like, oh, I'd like to believe that's true. But I'm not sh quite sure. And when I look at my life, what happens is you do that and so you keep putting your feet, your two feet in different camps. One is firmly in the Jesus camp. I'm going to church. Church does me good. Hallelujah. I like it when we sing those songs. That's that leg, and it's firmly planted there. But the other leg says, but if I give my whole life to Jesus, if I just say, Jesus, you can do whatever you want, then what if he asks me to do something I don't particularly like? And in any case, can I really trust him to look after me? What if I'm made to look stupid? You see, Jesus faced that. But he decided to make sure he got both feet in the one place. Not my will, but yours be done. That, what I'm talking about, is the key to your transformation. That's what you need to work on. That's what I need to work on. It's what we need to work on. Trusting him. Taking him at his word. When he says he's never going to leave us, he meant it. Oh, but I don't feel him. But you see, he didn't say, hang on, he didn't say, well, today you're going to feel it. Wednesdays is a great day to feel me. <laughs> he just says, you've got to trust me. Trust him. Trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus. It's the most scary thing, and it's the most wonderful thing. It's the most difficult thing, and it's the most easy thing. But... If you want to know the life of Jesus, it's the only thing that you can do. It's the only thing. If we plug a lamp in to the electricity, switch on the power at the wall, switch on the lamp, wow, the bulb's okay, we get light. We're happy. You pull the plug out, the bulb goes out doesn't matter if the plug is called Christian. It has to be connected to the power supply to make it truly what it's supposed to be. That way you get the light. Listen, there's no use any of us talking about Jesus if we're not connecting with him. If we don't connect with him, his power doesn't come through us. 
go back to where I started. What happened with Paul when he came to Ephesus? Paul came and he was connected to heaven. God enabled him to do extraordinary signs and miracles. And because of that and his teaching, his faithfulness in trusting in God, in believing in him, of standing with him through thick and thin. Things got a bit difficult when the Jews started kicking him out of the synagogue, so he went to the hall of Tyrannus and started speaking there. But he kept on. He kept on. There were days when he felt like Jesus was close to him. There were days when he felt like he was a long way away. But he kept on. He kept on. And God saw that he wanted to be connected to him. And so when we're connected to Jesus, God's power can start to flow. Folks, we need to be connected with Jesus. Otherwise, what happens, everything that I've talked about, we understand, oh, we know all the facts and figures. We know that we were lost, but now we've been made alive. We know that, but it doesn't have any impact in our lives. We must have the reality of being connected to Jesus to know the truth of these things. Because when we get connected to him, then the truth of this starts to come alive. You start to realise, I can't do without this word. I can't do without it because I have to keep going back to the Word to remind myself, oh yeah, I remember that I'm a father and I do like to give my kids good things. I love to bless them. I love to bless them abundantly. I love them passionately. Oh, but my Father in heaven loves me more than that. I have to keep reminding myself. But when I'm reminded and when I'm held in that place, I get connected to his power source and his power starts to flow in me and I start to feel the strength and the life that is only found in Christ Jesus. But when I get that life, boy, I come alive. And not only me, but everybody around me starts to feel, feel that life. I've spent far too long in my life trying to go through the process of trying to be nicer, kinder, more patient, and using the things of God to help me with that. Look, I can't do it like that. I have to trust in him and allow him to come into my life. I have to surrender my life to him. Boy, that's scary. But it has a great reward. Because when I am him, him when I've given myself to him, and he is mine, believe you me, anything can happen. Anything can happen. Hallelujah.